Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. To the book of Matthew, particularly to the seventh chapter. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 23 this morning. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. O oh, Father, how we do plead with you to be gracious to us, to bless the preaching of your word. Lord, especially in light of a weighty passage like this that we come to this morning, that when we consider the reality of the words which the Lord Jesus Christ speaks here, that there are many who will be deceived on the last day, who will believe themselves to be safe, to be those who are saved by your Son, and yet on the last day will be turned away. Lord, there can be nothing more weighty to consider, and therefore we do pray that you would grant us grace, wisdom to have our own eyes opened, that you would confirm to us these words, that we would know whether or not truly we belong to you. May it be, Lord, that you would hear this prayer for the sake of your own name, that that those who belong to you would give to you the worship and praise that is truly due to you. For Lord, we do ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you've, you've heard me say several times from this pulpit that in preaching, one of the, the things that preaching does is it sets before the people life and death, that life and death are set before the people of God. And there is this choice. Will you choose life or will you choose death? We've seen it over and over again as we've been walking through the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen it over and over again, even as we look at these concluding exhortations that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving. There is life and there is death that have been put before the people of God. And one of the passages that is perhaps uh, perhaps the clearest in all of the Bible that uh, details for us what this will look like on the last day is that which we have before us now, where the Lord Jesus Christ actually tells us something about what the conversation will be like when you stand before him on the judgment day. Now, this is there can be really nothing that we can consider that could be more important. What will the Lord Jesus Christ say of you on the last day? There are many in this world who, even if they, they don't claim the name of Christ, even if they're not Christians, they have a sense because of the conscience that God's given to them, that there is a right and wrong, that some, in some way there must be uh, a, a, a kind of judgment that will set all things to right. And many people, many people will uh, go even further than that. Even if they're not Christians, they'll say, you know, I believe perhaps God will judge me, but I do not think 
that I am that bad. I believe that it will go well with me uh, when I stand before God and he will not find me to be so wicked and I know that I'm not as bad as others, so many people will say. And so they feel confident about uh, the way in which the judgment will go. And if, But the problem is if you were to ask them, well, well, how do you know that? How do you know what it's going to be like? Who has told you that this is the way the judgment is going to go? There's really no answer that can be given. People just believe that that is the way it's going to be on the basis of really nothing. Now, there are others who may be more honest and they'll say, you know, perhaps God will judge, but I can't know. I can't know what he's going to say and I have no idea what he's going to say about my life. This is a, would be two common ways in which uh, people think about the last day, the judgment that God uh, is going to perform on the last day. And one of the things that we see even as people say this kind of thing is that even if they don't claim the name of Christ still, because God has given everyone a conscience, because everyone is made in the image of God, there is this sense in us that we will be judged by God, that there is a judgment that is in fact coming, and it's something that we cannot escape. That feeling, even if you suppress the truth as much as you can, still deep down you know, you know that there is a God, He's righteous, and He will call everything to account. Now, if this is the case, and if there is so much ignorance about what the last day is going to be like. Surely, if the Bible were to teach you what God will say to you on the last day, what he will be looking for from you, what will be the criteria by which he will say, either enter into heaven or be cast away forever into hell, surely, if the Bible teaches this, this is an incredibly important thing to heed. At this point now, we're not basing what is going to be said on the last day on just wishful thinking. We're not saying that we can be ignorant of it. We are actually listening to the testimony of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, as, as he says of himself in John 3, to testify of the things that are in heaven, who is himself, even as we see here, and even in other places in Matthew, particularly Matthew 25, which is uh, perhaps even an expanded version of this, where uh, there is perhaps even more detail about what the final judgment will be like. But we have here words from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the one who will judge you. The judge himself has come down from heaven in order to teach you and to say, this is what I am going to say on the last day. When you stand before me, this will be the criteria that I will use. And if, if you answer like this, this will be where you go. And if your life is a testimony to this, then this is where you will go. This surely must be words that must be heeded. And it is would be the utmost foolishness to have the judge himself come down from heaven to tell you what the judgment will be like and for you not to take heed to these words. All, every single person, without exception, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the conversation will go something like what the Lord Jesus Christ says in these words. In these words, there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord, but the Lord Jesus Christ says, not all of those who say, Lord, Lord, will in fact enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ here is, is not even so much distinguishing between those who claim the name of Christ and those who do not claim the name of Christ. He's actually addressing only those who claim his name. And he's saying even within that category, not every single person will be saved. In fact, he says many, many will be turned away on the last day. Now, this comes as the third of four concluding exhortations to the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, we, we've looked at the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken of two gates, 
There's one wide that leads to destruction. There's one narrow that leads to life. The Lord Jesus Christ has spoken of two trees. There's one that bears good fruit that will be saved on the last day. There's one that bears bad fruit. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking of two confessions. There is a true confession where there will be salvation, and there is a false confession which will, in fact, lead to death itself. And the point is this. You will not enter the kingdom of God simply because you say that you're a Christian simply because you've made a profession of faith. Even if you've made that profession of faith to an Orthodox Reformed Church, it does not mean that you will be saved on the last day. The Lord Jesus Christ here says that you will only be saved if your confession of faith is credible and shown to be credible by the way that you live your life. By the way that you live your life. Does your life show that you have a credible profession of faith? Or to use even the language that Christ uses uh, in the previous example, which we looked at last week, does your life actually bear good fruit to God that is pleasing to him? That is going to be the, the determining factor. We see this, we've seen this with uh, the uh, teaching on the two gates. We've seen it with the teaching on the, uh, the, the two trees. We'll see it next week, the, the two foundations. We even see this in the more expanded uh, form of Christ's teaching on this in Matthew 25. It will, it will be determined that your eternal destiny will be determined by the fruit of your life. Does your life show forth a true and vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, we'll look at this passage. We'll look at this passage under two headings. First, we'll consider in verse 21 the two confessions that are made. So Christ says, who will be admitted to the kingdom of God and who will not be admitted to the kingdom of God. And then the purpose of verses 22 and 23 is to expand on what it will be like for those who have a false confession. So, so we'll give a, a, a fuller description of the false confession. So the, the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving in these three verses is to really give a profound warning to those who are inside the covenant community. If you're a member of a church, this is the warning that Christ is giving to you. That for those who are inside the covenant community, what is it, what is it that God will in fact Require. So we'll look at the two confessions and then we'll expand on uh, the, the false confession that is given uh, by those who believe themselves to be saved but yet aren't. Now, notice as I mentioned as we come back to verse 21, there are two confessions. But notice there's something that's similar in both confessions. The Lord Jesus Christ says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So there are some people who will claim the name of Christ and yet who will not enter. But then the Lord says, but he who does the will of my father in heaven, he, so that person will enter. Now implied in this is that those who do the will of the father of Christ, that those people actually do also call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and call him Lord. That is to say, that there is something that's a, that is a common thread through both confessions, and that is that both are willing to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Lord of heaven, that he is, in fact, the Lord. Now, one of the things that this implies is that even though not everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, in, in the sense of outwardly calling upon that name and just saying, I believe that Jesus is the Lord, even though it's, it's true that not every single person who says those words uh, will be saved. It's also true that if you do not have such a confession, if you do not have such a profession, you cannot be saved. That is to say, if you say Jesus is Lord, you may be saying it falsely, but if you don't say that Jesus is Lord, you certainly will not be saved. That is to say that this confession, that saying that Jesus is Lord is necessary for salvation, 
but it may not be sufficient. You may be able to say it falsely. Now, this means that, of course, as I mentioned, as the Lord Jesus Christ is directing this warning predominantly to those who are members of the covenant community, those who actually claim the name of Christ, that there is some implication for those who do not claim the name of Christ. And that is that you must claim the name of Christ. If you do not claim the name of Christ, certainly, certainly you cannot be saved on the last day. Now, even as I say that, uh, you know, many today would consider uh, such a statement to be narrow-minded or perhaps even bigoted that I would say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way. It's the only way to be saved. There is no other way. If you do not claim the name of Christ and on the last day, you will not be saved. Uh, is this true? Is it true that this is a narrow-minded view? Well, in, in some ways we could say it's narrow-minded, but it's not narrow-minded in a prejudiced sort of way because it is in fact true. It is in fact true. And really to, to say that the way of salvation is narrow-minded or bigoted is really to overlook the great problem that we have in sin. If, if, if you think about what you are faced as, as a human, as someone who's born, as a son of Adam, that you have a problem with sin. This is not a small problem. This sin leads to death. Your death is not a small problem. You are, the, as the scriptures say, in bondage to Satan himself. It's not a small problem. It's not something that you can very easily deal with in your life. We are in, if you are outside of Christ, you are in a dire situation. And if this is the case, then for you to, to look at the scriptures and to say, well, I, I think that the kind of solution that is being proposed doesn't fit what I think is fair. It is, it's a complete, uh, it, just, it just shows a complete ignorance and a lack of recognition of what the problem is. If you are drowning and about to die, you're, you're not going to uh, speak about the, the fairness of, uh, of the person who comes to save you. You're simply going to be thankful for that there is, in fact, a method of salvation. The reality is this. All, uh, all people outside of Christ are dead in the trespasses and sins in which they walk. And the only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than say that God is not fair for providing a, not providing another way, the best thing to do is simply to make use of the method of salvation that God has in fact revealed, and that is to, to, to flee to Christ, to flee to Christ. The reason why he can be the savior of the world is because he's the only one that's conquered death itself. Your problem is sin and death. Christ has conquered those. Your problem is Satan. Christ has defeated him. There's nobody else who could do this. That's the reason why there can be no other way of salvation. Christ is the only one who was mighty to save. And therefore, it is necessary, it is necessary to claim the name of Christ if you are going to be saved. And even more, even more, if we, if we think a little bit more about what this confession entails, and even as it's given in verse 21, and even we'll see in verse 22 as well, that this confession of Christ as Lord is an orthodox confession. This is to say that in this confession of faith, the person who claims Jesus as Lord is claiming that he is God. Now, this is one of the ways in which uh, the Lord Jesus Christ even testifies uh, uh, about himself that he clearly understands that he is God. Uh, this is one of the, the ways. He, he assumes that all people will come to him and they'll say, Lord, Lord. He assumes further, now, he assumes further that on the last day, he is going to be the judge. This is one of the reasons why, uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ finishes this great sermon, the people are so amazed at his authority that he doesn't teach as a scribe or a Pharisee. The scribes and Pharisees would never have said, on the last day, you will come to me and you will have to declare me Lord and then I will choose what happens to you on the last day. No scribe or Pharisee could say that. But the Lord Jesus Christ says that here. 
Now, some, some have tried to argue and say, well, the, the, the title Lord is not necessarily a divine title. And that's true. It can be used in, in other ways. Um, it, it, it is a divine title, but it can be used in other contexts as well. However, think of the way it's being used here. It's not being used just in terms of a, a way of showing respect to someone who is your superior, but this is the confession that is made on the day of judgment itself wherein this one who is the Lord said emphatically, because it's repeated twice and in two different places, uh, it, this one who is the Lord is going to determine the, the final destiny of all people. This is something, even as we, we recognize that God is the judge of all the earth, well, here Christ is saying that he is the judge of all the earth. And on the last day, you will stand before him. He is very clearly declaring himself to be God. And, and even more than that, you must recognize this. And your eternal destiny is going to be determined by this one who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if we, as, as we think about all the amazing ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ puts forward and asserts his own authority, uh, this is actually becomes the main point of all of the miracles that are described in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Matthew. This is the, 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 the narrative thread that pulls through as we, we get a, a sample of Christ's teaching in chapters 5 through 7. Then in chapters 8 and 9, the Lord Jesus Christ shows that when he says he has authority, that it is absolutely confirmed by all the things in which he does. That is to say, Christ says, I am the Lord, I will be the judge at the end, and I will be the one that determines what will happen to you. And then everything that he does in life, all of the miracles that he does, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one who has authority over all of creation because he is, in fact, God himself. And so, there is a necessity. You must say that Jesus is Lord. But notice as well, this is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. If that's all that you have, Christ says it is not enough to save you on the last day. What Christ says is enough comes in the second part of verse 21, and that is the one who does the will of God who's in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there must be a confession of, of faith in Christ. And we would say as well that if you have a true confession of faith, that is in fact sufficient. But what the Lord Jesus Christ is getting at here is that if your confession of faith does not come carry with it an actual doing of God's will, then on the last day that is in, that in fact will be uh, insufficient. Now, uh, and I've kind of alluded to the answer here, but it is important for us to recognize and to consider the way in which what Christ says here is related to the doctrine of justification by faith. Is Christ teaching a works righteousness when he says that it's not just your confession of faith? saying that Jesus is Lord that will save you, but it is rather doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. How does that square with what Paul says, for instance, in Ephesians 2, that you are not saved by works so that no one can boast. You're saved by, by grace through faith. You have been saved. This is not by works so that no one can boast. How is it that this passage is related to, to that one? Well, really, Paul and Jesus are talking about two different things. Paul is talking about the way in which justification happens at the moment of conversion, at the moment of a profession of faith. And everyone who makes that confession of faith will, in fact, bear fruit. Paul would not argue uh, with that at all. In fact, he says as much in verse 10 of, of Ephesians chapter 2, that we are God's workmanship prepared in advance uh, by him uh, for good works. The point is that that. Paul is speaking about the moment of conversion. Christ here is speaking about the last day, the last day. What will happen on the last day? And on the last day, your works will be very important in terms of what will happen to you uh, at the end. And this is because, as James has said in James 2, faith without works is dead. A faith that does not work in life is a dead faith. And therefore, 
the surest way, so to speak, to prove that someone's faith was in fact genuine is by determining whether or not that person actually did the will of God. If you say that you believe, but you never do the will of the Father, your faith is not real. That's the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making. We even see this with with the context and the way in which Christ has dealt with uh, the other concluding exhortations that we've looked at. The way in which you know you've gone through the narrow gate is because you're walking on the narrow way. There's a connection between those two. The way that you know that you're a good tree is because you're producing good fruit. The fruit cannot make the tree, but the fruit do reveal the tree, just as the narrow way reveals the gate through which you walked. The, The narrow way proceeds out of the narrow gate. And so there is a connection between these two. Now, the important thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is is emphasizing here, though, is that um, even though we would say that you are not saved by your works in the sense that you cannot merit salvation, your works are incredibly important. The question to ask, brothers and sisters, is this. Do your works show that you have a credible profession of faith? If someone were to look at your life and even be able to see into your heart, even as God does, if they see in your heart and they see the things that you do, would they conclude, well, this is clearly someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's credible. It makes sense. They don't don't get everything right, but clearly they love the Lord Jesus Christ and clearly they are doing the will of the Father. That is is what will be used to determine on the last day. Uh, not, Not only is this a good thought exercise, but this is even what will be made manifest. Think of Romans chapter 2, where, uh, where Paul says that, that Christ will judge the world according to the secrets of men. Everything, in terms of your thought processes, of what you do, everything will be made manifest in the last day, and it will be perfectly obvious whether or not your confession of faith was true. You cannot rest on the mere fact of the confession. There must, in fact, be works that show that the confession is true. And in this way... And this way, we could say that even though good works are not necessary at all for justification, you will not be declared righteous because of your works. It is only for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can also say that you will not be saved on the last day. You will not be saved on the last day without good works. That in some sense, in this way, uh, good works are necessary. If there are no good works, then your faith is dead. And that faith will not justify you on the last day. And if we say that even another way, The Lord Jesus Christ and and the Apostle Paul, the scriptures, everything teaches that you can only be saved by faith. You can only be justified by faith. However, you're justified by faith because by faith you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. God declares you righteous because he sees Christ's righteousness in you. If If you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, it also means that you are united to him in such a way that his life will now be reflected in yours. That is to say, if you're justified by faith and if you're united to Christ by faith, you must also be sanctified. You can't receive Christ for justification without also receiving him for sanctification. You can't receive a declaration of righteousness from God because you're united to Christ without also receiving a holiness of life because God works, everyone that he declares righteous, he also works a holiness of life such that you will do the will of the Father who's in heaven. If you don't do the will of the Father who's in heaven, it means your faith was not real and it means that the justification actually never took place. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. It doesn't in any way contradict uh, justification by faith. We would affirm very strongly, as the Apostle Paul does and as the entire scriptures do, on the last day, on the last day, your works will be considered. Your works will be considered. And it will be based on your works that you will stand or fall in this way. 
uh, in that it will either prove your confession of faith or it will falsify it. And there will be many, the Lord Jesus Christ says, who will say, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in verse, verses 22 and 23, the Lord Jesus Christ expands on a false confession. Going even further, not just will there be many people who will make a profession of faith who will say, Lord, Lord, that will actually maybe even say that Jesus is God. They will have a, an orthodox confession of faith with, with regard to the deity of Christ. But also, we read in verse 22 that these, that these people who will be turned away from Christ on the last day, they will have other things that they will say. Notice a number of great things that you and I will never do. And, that, and there's no indication in the text that these people did not do these things. So there are a number of things that are said to be insufficient, even things that you do. They'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? So they're prophets. Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done wonders in your name? Now that last one, wonders, is the idea of, of doing a great works of miracles. It'd be, um, you know, it'd be the same kind of language that's used to describe Moses with, the, with the, the plagues, the great signs and wonders. So here are people who come before the Lord Jesus Christ. They have an orthodox profession of faith. They believe that Jesus is God. They, they say that they believe that he is the Lord. They, they then also say, well, we've also prophesied in your name. We didn't prophesy in the name of another. We prophesied in your name. Not only that, but we also cast out demons in your name. And we could see, many people could attest that, that they were in fact cast out. We even did great and many signs in your name. And Christ says there will be some people who have that kind of confession and who have done those things in their life. Again, there's nothing to say, nothing in the text that would indicate that these things did not happen. The Lord Jesus Christ does not contradict them on this. Even someone who has done those things and yet has made this confession of faith, they will be turned away on the last day. There are many who will be turned away on the last day who have done those things and who have said, uh, who have said uh, that, that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. Now, how could this be? How could it be that someone could make a kind of orthodox confession of faith and yet, and, and still even then, do great and mighty signs in the name of Christ and still not be admitted to heaven on the last day? And, or even to say it another way, how could someone prophesy in the name of Christ, cast out demons in the name of Christ, do many mighty works in the name of Christ, and not be doing the will of the Father who's in heaven? Remember what, what Christ says in verse 21. If you do the will of the Father in heaven, you will be admitted. Some people will say, well, I've prophesied. I've cast out demons. I have done all these great works. And yet, Christ says they, those people will be turned away, which, which implies they have not done the will of the Father who's in heaven. How could this be the case? Well, the reason, the, the way this can be the case is because the Bible distinguishes between uh, two things, what, what I call gifts and graces, gifts and graces. And there are some ways in which gifts and graces are very similar. There are spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives. These can be related to the things which are spoken. Uh, prophecy, casting out demons, doing wonders. Those would be spiritual gifts. There are also spiritual graces, things that are also work of the Holy Spirit in the life uh, of believers. And so there are, there's this distinction. And what I'm saying is what, what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching is that even if you have been given great gifts, if there is no grace in your heart, the gifts are insufficient. The thing that is absolutely necessary is not gifts, but it is graces. It is grace. Now, if we were to, de to define what's, what, what would be gifts, what would be graces, the, the, the idea of a spiritual gift is, is something that the Spirit of God uh, does in a person, equips someone, 
in order to build up the church. It's the point of the spiritual gifts we see in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and in many other places. And in the scriptures, there are two different kinds. There's extraordinary kinds that have gone away. All of the ones that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of here are extraordinary gifts that have passed away. And therefore, you know, none of us will be able to say that on the last day that we've done these things with any kind of truth. Others would include, uh, include uh, tongues or the interpretation of tongues, gifts of healing, uh, and then uh, the ones that are mentioned here, casting out demons, doing mighty works. All of these things are extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. However, there's also ordinary ones that we see today. And this is important to, to keep in mind because if you have these, what Christ is saying is these are insufficient in the sense of you cannot lean on the presence of these in your life and say, I know that I belong to Christ. So these would include teaching, preaching, administration, various ways of service, evangelism. All of these things are gifts that the Spirit gives. And they're, it's not that they're bad. They're, they're very good things. They're given for the sake of the building up of the church, but they are distinct from grace. They're distinct from the graces that the Spirit also gives. If you were to, to ask, well, what, what would be the grace? Well, uh, what would be graces as opposed to gifts? Well, this would uh, be the fruit of the Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Things that the Spirit works in the heart of a true believer that are conducive to holiness. It has to do with character, not so much the things that you do outwardly, but the way in which you live, the way in which your heart is. And there are, there are great similarities between these. Both gifts and graces come from the Spirit. Both are used to glorify God. Both ought to be pursued by every believer. Every believer must pursue the gifts as best they can, but they must pursue graces as, as best they can. However, there are differences. And, and the most important one is this. Gifts can be obtained without a true confession. Gifts can be obtained without a true confession. And this means you must never rely on your ability to be useful in the church as grounds for you assuring yourself that you belong to Christ. There will be many people who will be able to say on the last day, Lord, did I not preach very many faithful and zealous sermons in your name? And they'll be turned away. Lord, did I not give all of my time and energy to the church? And they will be turned away. They will have an orthodox confession of faith. Many people will be able to attest to the great things that they did for the church. Perhaps even many people will be able to say that actually benefited me and the church was built up through this, these actions. And yet you may be able to do all those things. Gifts do not prove the reality of a true confession of faith. What proves it is godliness, is godliness. And just to prove that you can have the one without the other, think of the example of Balaam in the Old Testament. Balaam had the gift of prophecy. Not only did he have the gift of prophecy, he prophesied truly. Uh, the, the, the four oracles of Balaam are, were true prophecy. Even two of them, the, the third and the fourth, are very clear, direct, messianic prophecies that even build on other passages of, of Scripture that come before it. Balaam even said he's unwilling to curse the Israelites because God did not send him to curse. He, he relayed the words of God. He actually did that. And yet he was clearly wicked. We know from other places in Numbers that he actually advised Balak, who hired him, to try to steer the Israelites into idolatry because then they won't be, be blessing. He says, I can't curse them, but if you, if you entice them to idolatry, then God will work against them himself. He was wicked. And the scriptures everywhere testify that Balaam was wicked. And yet, he prophesied in the name of the Lord. And he prophesied in this sense truly. Think of even uh, Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, similar thing. He sought the gifts. But Peter says, 
that you are still that you are still outside of Christ, you're still in wickedness because you are seeking the gifts but not the grace. You are not seeking actual holiness. And this is, again, the way it will be. Uh, even in the church, there will be some people who are, say, you're, you're gifted teachers. Perhaps, you, perhaps people are gifted teachers or this or that. Perhaps people are very, uh, very popular preachers. And yet that itself is not evidence. It is not evidence of a genuine profession of faith. You think of even Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he speaks about those who are preaching Christ and he rejoices that others are preaching Christ, though he knows they are doing it out of envy. They have no grace in the way in which they're preaching Christ. They are doing it for selfish ends. He rejoices that, that they are preaching Christ, so he recognizes the gift. He even believes that it will be used by God for the aid of the church, but they are not doing it in a way that's godly. There is gifts, but there are no graces. Brothers and sisters, the thing that is needed is not what you do outwardly that proves that you are zealous for the church. It is, do you do it out of love for God? Do you actually love God? If you were to ask, well, what are, what are the, these gifts, the graces? It is simply the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you have these in increasing measure? And does your life show forth that you have these? This is the thing that is necessary. This is what it means to be doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. On the last day, you come before the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not be your orthodox confession. It will not be your service in the church. It will be, how is your heart before God? Did you live a holy life? You think about this, probably even the most drastic example of this in the New Testament is, is uh, the church of Corinth, where Paul affirms this church was vastly gifted. They could do very many great things, and yet, and yet, they had no grace. They had no love. And this is why the Apostle Paul speaks of love being superior to all the other gifts. You're seeking prophecy. What you ought to be seeking is love. Brothers and sisters, you must seek spiritual gifts. You must seek them with all your heart to use them for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. But above all else, above everything else, you must seek to increase in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that must manifest itself in loving others. You must seek to grow in your love for Christ and in your love for others. If you do not focus on this, there, you may be one who is surprised on the last day. There are many, this is the point, in verse 23, many will be surprised on the last day. Many will be surprised. I've done some, so many great things. Many people testify that it benefited. Perhaps even God used it to build up the church. But in that day, the Lord Jesus Christ says, there are many people to whom he will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ will say to many people who have an orthodox profession and who have, who have great gifts worked by the Holy Spirit. I never knew you. The idea of Christ saying to somebody that he does not know them is he does not, he does not recognize them. He, someone may claim to know Christ. This is clearly happening in the passage here. But the main thing is, does Christ know you? Not do you confess Christ before others, but does Christ confess you? This is even what the, what the Apostle Paul says in a number of places, 1 Corinthians 8, Galatians 4, that it's, it's one thing to, to know God. You know, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 that, uh, that, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he's encouraging the Corinthians towards love rather than knowledge. But he says, you know, it's one thing to say you know God, but it's better to say that God knows you. That's really the thing that's so important. Does God recognize you? And even, even further, the idea of love or of, of knowledge in the Bible is not simply that you have knowledge of somebody, but it implies a, a relationship, an intimate relationship, that you know someone intimately 
and personally, and this is, this is why even the scriptures, as it uh, regularly speaks, particularly in the Old Testament, of sexual relations between a, a man and a woman, that it will describe it as knowledge, that you, that you know a person, because there's, knowledge implies a deep and intimate relationship with another person. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here is that there will be many who will say all these things, but they'll say, you know, I never knew you. I never knew you. There is no intimate relationship that I have with you because I can see in your life that you do not love me. You do not love me. You may have done all these things, but, but I never knew you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the key, is love. The thing, is, the thing that will determine everything is, do you have a relationship of love with the Lord Jesus Christ? Does he know you and do you know him? Notice that those whom Christ says he does not know, that on the last day he will say, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Even if you've done all these great, great gifts, you have all these great gifts, you've used them, Christ will still say that you are a worker of lawlessness. You are a worker of lawlessness. And the reason is because if you think of the summary of the law, what does the law teach that you should do? You should love. Summary of the law is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. You are a worker of lawlessness if you have every gift and use it for the sake of the church, but do not do it with love because you've not fulfilled any of the commandments. All of them have to do with love. This is what doing the will of the Father who is in heaven means. It means that you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it even as the Apostle Paul has said, if you can speak in the tongues of men and angels, if you have the gift of prophecy, if you have all knowledge so as to understand all mysteries, if you are willing to give away all that you have, but if you do not have love, then you have nothing. You have nothing. Nothing will aid you on the last day. Brothers and sisters, what is it that Christ will say of you on the last day? When he returns with all of his angels and with all of his glory to judge the world in righteousness, will you shrink back from him because you know in your heart that you do not love him? Will you shrink back at him as you shrink from an enemy? Or will you be willing to meet him joyfully and to rejoice at his coming? The determining answer, how you answer that, will be based on whether or not you do the will of the Father who is in heaven, whether or not you actually love the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that even as uh, Christ here testifies that he will turn away many on the last day, may it be that not one of you would be, would, find, would be found wanting on that day, but that God would grant all of you the grace to grow in love for him and that your confession of faith would prove true to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we are thankful for your grace. Lord, even as we think about the weightiness of this subject, how thankful we are that you have revealed it to us, that you have, in fact, taught us what that last day will be like, such that those who truly believe in you can, can go through all of life and even into the judgment itself with perfect confidence, uh, knowing that you have, in fact, revealed to us what it will be like, and you've, even for those who are true, you've testified in our hearts uh, that we will be acquitted on the last day. Lord, how thankful we are that you did not leave us in the dark. How terrible it would be to have to face that last day with no knowledge. And yet, Lord, you have uh, revealed it to us in your Son. May it be that you would grant us the grace to heed the words as well. That you would work in us a heart of flesh. That we would be able to receive these words with humility 
and that we would truly grow in love for you, that we would pursue love for you above everything else, that we would cast everything else to the side, that we might gain Christ, that we might pursue not even the, the things that you give us, but Lord, more than anything else, that we would pursue you. Lord, may our hearts be proved true on the last day by your spirit. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.